Welcome to Data Brew by Databricks with Denny and Brooke. The series allows us to explore various topics in the data and AI community. Whether we're talking about data engineer or data science, we'll interview subject matter experts to dive deeper into these topics. And this season, we're focusing on large language models, or LMs, while we're enjoying our morning brew. My name is Denny Lee. I'm a developer advocate here at Databricks and one half of Databrew. And hello, everyone. My name is Brooke Wenig, Director of the Machine Learning Practice at Databricks and the other half of Databrew. And today, I am delighted to introduce Omar Khattab, PhD student in computer science at Stanford University, and also the creator of the Demonstrate Search Predict framework. Welcome, Omar. Thanks. Glad to be here. So to kick it off, would love to just learn a bit more about your background. How did you get into the field of NLP? Uh, so I did my undergrad in Carnegie Mellon's campus in Qatar. It's a very small kind of campus they have there. Um, and it just has four or five programs in total. Um, so I studied computer science and there's no grad school. So research, doing research there as an undergrad is a unique and you know interesting experience. Um, uh, so we started working, I started working with uh, one of the faculty there Muhammad Hamoud, and we basically uh, looked at large-scale analytics and parallel processing in various kind of AI or AI-adjacent applications. And one of our sort of last long-running collaborations before I graduated was we were looking at um, how to make information retrieval or search, uh, you know, uh, more scalable and faster and also just, you know, easier to program in, in uh, you know, for traditional models that work with... Um, term-based indexes, essentially, uh, you know, what you'd see in Elasticsearch or, or you know, traditional uh, systems like that. Um, so I graduated and I joined Stanford for my PhD. And, uh, you know, I was talking to Matei, who is, uh, you know, my, my advisor. Uh, um, um, and we had a few different things that we were thinking about, but they were all related to retrieval. So we, uh, you know, one option was we could look into this weird bird thing and the kind of, you know, what it could do in IR, you know, it was, it was the, the first users of BERT had been in IR for just a few months at that, at that point, BERT itself was a year old or a bit less. Um, and, you know, there were interesting questions there about maybe doing indexing, uh, like traditional indexing, but with BERT. And what would that even entail? We also had the uh, other idea that was, you know, obviously much more exciting in retrospect, um, you know, I'm kidding, which was, um, you know, building faster um, phrase search. So what if you want to search, you know, in traditional systems, but match phrases in an efficient way? And, you know, uh, Matei suggested that the BERT thing sounds like it's going to be, you know, more relevant in the long run. And that, you know, that was obviously the case. Um, so we started bu building this, this uh, retrieval model um, that, you know, ended up being a lot bigger than we thought, which is uh, called Colbert. Um, and, you know, you know, that's, I guess that's its own story. But through Colbert, I, I ended up sort of interacting with Chris Potts, my other advisor, um, who is an NLPer. Um, and, you know, he encouraged us to start thinking of what this sort of retrieval stuff could do in NLP. And I guess through that, um, at some point, I officially, you know, became an NLPer, uh, you know, in, in, in some sense. Well, you have the honor of being the first person that I have met that identifies as an NLP -er. <laughs> Oh, that, that, I did not make that term up, but I probably heard it for the first time from Chris. Fair enough. So I have to ask you, just because I've got a very sad, uh, sad state of, uh, of humor. So I take it Colbert is not, not referencing to Steve Colbert or The Colbert Show, right? So well, so um, 
Colbert is all about a technique, and I'm happy to talk about it for a bit. In fact, um, it's it's a I, as much as I'm joking, I do do think it'd be actually helpful for the audience to listen to at least a little bit of the context of what Colbert is before we d dive in deeper. Yes. Absolutely. So. Um, uh, before before the technical side, Colbert is about a technique called late interaction. And we thought, well, late interaction, birth, late show, got to call it Colbert. So, um, you know, it, it stands for contextualized late interaction over birth. Um, we definitely worked backwards from from Colbert. Uh, but, you know, the name, the, the, the name does work out. Um, so Colbert comes into in, in that space where... In IR with BERT, there are very there were very unfavorable trade-offs. Either you work with what is called dense encoders or bi-encoders. We like to call them single vector methods because that, that's a more precise terminology, I think. And what these methods do is that they would take your favorite large, you know, large by BERT standards language model, and they would run it on every document in your collection. So you know, you're you're doing search, you have thousands, millions. Um, you know, hundreds of millions of documents, and you want to be able to retrieve relevant things from them given a query. So uh, these methods, that's sort of the mainstream approach, is that you would take BERT and teach it to take each of these documents that you have and spit out this vector, maybe a dense vector, um, that has, you know, a thousand dimensions or 700 dimensions um, that is meant to represent the semantics in that context. And, you know, there's tons of research that looks at that. Um, and then you have a query that you want to, uh, you know, that you want to find relevant documents for. And what you do is you ask that, that same encoder to give you a vector. And then you do similarity search, like just give me for this query, what are the nearest 100 documents? And I'm going to return them to the system or to the user, whatever the, the, the pipeline looks like. Um, so that's one extreme. And that's sort of like the, 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 the bread and butter of a lot of IR. Um, on the other extreme, there are these things that are called cross encoders or read anchors. And what these do is they say, hey, BERT is all about attention. So what we got to do to make it work as well as possible is allow it to attend to things and to attend to a query and a document at once. You know, it means that we're going to give BERT the two together jointly. Con you know, we've got to condition the two together. Um, what that means is now BERT can look at like all of the interactions between the terms, not just within the document, but within the document knowing what the query is and that makes it a whole lot more powerful but the problem is it's not scalable because now every time you get a new query you, all of your representations of the documents are useless because now you've got to recondition again on you know the 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 new query that you have and you know we didn't like that trade-off so what we started thinking of is hey what's the what's the is, is there a way to sort of bring balance into this and uh, what we realized was um you know Maybe we can keep that independent encoding of um, the, the the query and the document without resorting to cramming the representation into a single vector, and instead keep the 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 take the token level decomposition that BERT has, but also that is known in IR traditionally to be something that's really powerful. Um, keep that decomposition, and basically for every document. We're going to produce a set of vectors, uh, a matrix, essentially, not a single vector. And the questions that this sort of raises is, well, now if your query is a matrix and your document is a matrix, how do you scale up similarity search? And, uh, you know, Colbert, that's where Colbert gets really interesting, because even though we're changing into this, like, much more expressive scoring mechanism, um, it's created in, in such a careful way that it actually is very easy to scale up, um, and it's very easy to make this, you know, um, um, 
you know, amenable to optimization. So, you know, you end up with something that is similar in latency, similar in space footprint after, you know, a sequence of papers that we've published at Stanford here optimizing this, uh, but a whole lot more robust and resilient, you know, to, to difficult search queries and, you know, to transfer to new domains in, in search. So that is sort of like the, uh, I don't know how many minutes this has been, but maybe the 10 minute version of what Colbert is, is all about. Yeah, that's awesome. That totally makes sense. That would be way more expressive and powerful representing it as a matrix of vectors as opposed to a singular vector. Yeah, actually, let me add like the key intuition there because I, I, I forgot is, um, you know, especially as to why it generalizes better. Um, we basically hypothesize and we see time and time again that it's just inherently an easier task to encode a term given its context, given given its context, than to figure out one representation that covers all possible questions you could ask about a document. Um, so just capturing one term, saying like, "Hey, this this person, they're saying bank here, and they mean actually the river bank in the context of somebody who's taking a walk." That's a much simpler concept that than. Oh, here's a document that's describing a story in which a person named this is taking a walk next to a river bank, and uh, you know, so that's a much uh, um, harder uh, representation to capture with a single vector representation. And so, how did all of this lead way into developing the demonstrate search predict framework? Great. So we built Colbert, uh, Matei and I, and you know, we saw lots of excitement around it. Um, Chris. Uh, had joined us and he really sort of believed in this and, and, and thought, you know, there's something very deep and serious here that we should explore more. And so uh, Chris urged us to basically start looking into, um, you know, NLP applications with the hypothesis that bringing retrieval into them will help NLP. Uh, and, you know, this, this has been basically the common theme of, you know, all of the stuff that, you know, uh, Matei, Chris, and I have been, have been doing, uh, you know, over the past few years. Um, so we built a system called Colbert QA, where we can answer questions over, like, say, a Wikipedia corpus um, using a Colbert retriever and some downstream language models. But the question is how do you get them to adapt to one another and work together in a new domain? And we were, we were actually quite surprised because... Um, if you just took Colbert and you applied it to that task out of the box before even any adaptation, it was already outperforming some of the, you know, state of the art stuff at that time uh, in, in uh, you know, in that domain. And so that encouraged us to sort of just look into actually adapting it more and, and you know, uh, uh, seeing what we can do in terms of quality there. Um, we started looking at harder tasks later where simply taking a user's input, which might be a question, and like asking Colbert to find stuff might not be enough. So say um, you might try, be trying to do fact-checking over claims that are like a couple of sentences long. And these might not necessarily be something that's like there's a single paragraph in Wikipedia that tells you like, you know, that is um, reasonable or not. Um, it might actually be split across many pages. And so... Um, you know, we looked into multi-hop search is, is what it's called. And we built this system called Baleen that uses Colbert-style retrievers, but in an iterative formulation where the retriever looks for stuff, finds some documents, asks the language model to read them, summarize what it's, what it's found that's relevant, and then go back to the retriever and then find more things in the sense that sometimes finding some sources tells you what other dependencies or what more things you need to look for, essentially as a bridge to, um, you know, the final big picture or set of different you know, small puzzle pieces that you're you're you're, you're gathering in 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 
to inform your end task. Um, and we ended up sort of collaborating with a, you know, a number of, of great researchers here at Stanford and elsewhere at building a number of these systems. So like, you know, Ashwin, uh, you know, who was a PhD student here, you know, uh, he, he graduated, um, you know, we, we built Hindsight, he led the Hindsight project. Uh, we built, you know, Colbert V2, uh, looking more at like zero shot retriever, uh, retrieval um, and a number of other systems. And, you know, around a year ago, a little bit more than a year ago, um, so in early 2022, we started thinking, well, you know, Great. So we, we've learned that retrieval is really key to doing a lot of really powerful things in NLP, especially in like these knowledge intensive tasks, tasks where, you know, uh, you want the model to be grounded in, in documents to search for things and to find them and to cite their sources. Um, and, you know, this, this, this can be, uh, I go on a tangent here, but this, this, is, this is really desirable because, well, maybe the model is making mistakes, as, as we all know, like they make stuff up or otherwise mistake things. Um, it would be great if we could reduce the frequency with which that happens, but also perhaps, perhaps more importantly, um, it's, it would be great if um, when they do make mistakes or they don't, we can just check what was going on and see what they read and how they understood it and what they did based on it so that when they're right or when they're wrong, we know what to trust. Like, hey, I, 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 I told you something and I'm citing a source you do trust, but that source is not saying the same thing that I'm saying. So maybe I made it up. Um, um, or maybe I'm copying something reasonably from a source, but you actually don't think that source is particularly reliable in this topic. So you could just say, hey, like, okay, I, I know what, what was going on and I, I'm, I'm going to choose not to, yeah, I'm going to do my own research or I'm going to ask again until I, you know, I'll, I'll, let you, I'll let you know I don't like this source and, I'll tr and maybe you should try, you know, a different thing. Um, so this is a sort of like, this is sort of established for us that retrieval and NLP should really exist together. Um, but we didn't like the fact that each of the systems I mentioned, like Baleen and Hindsight and others, were a multi-month sort of very high effort, you know, one or more PhD students uh, working on a new architecture that, that is hard to develop for that one task. And we ended up with this architecture that is specific to that task. Moreover, it needed a whole lot of data because you got to train all of the components, you know, the retriever to work with the downstream language model. And, you know, that was difficult. And what was sort of what we what we just shown at that point with Colbert V2 is that, um, well, retrieval had reached a, a point where you could say, just take standard, you know, Colbert V2 models or, you know, state-of-the-art retrieval models and actually just tackle tasks zero shot. Just give it a query in any domain, uh, you know, that's reasonably vaguely related to its training data it doesn't have to be aligned with it and it will impress you it will work pretty well um and obviously language models well at that point we, you know few shot learning was older age and gpt3 was you know uh you know uh in increasingly central uh, obviously a lot less than it is now but it's, you know it was clearly something that you know a, a trend that was coming and so you have these components that work really well at like relatively small well-defined subtasks and We've been building highly kind of, let's say, bespoke architectures by fine tuning them. But the question is, what can you do if you took them off the shelf and try to like compose them in interesting complex architectures? And what does that even mean? And what design choices exist? And how well could you do? And, you know, should you just like, you know, what, how should you glue them together? What, what, what primitives essentially emerge? What patterns emerge as you try to do that? Um, and so we basically wanted to build a programming model, um, a framework, um, well, a framework, but, but, but more, you know, eventually actually a fully, fully fledged programming model that can express these sort of uh, retrieval 
language model systems, you know, in, in a few lines of, of code and abstract away that recurring complexity that, you know, um, we've seen in building the other, the other systems. Well, this is really interesting. So you, you've covered actually a whole bunch of stuff. And so I, I want to actually go backwards a little bit. So for starters, when you're talking about DSP, you also had noted in the past that this idea of knowing what the sources are, like in terms of like trusting which set of sources, right? I'm curious within that context, like uh, before we even talk about the programming language to simplify the, its retrieval, what's the context or by which you can go ahead and cite the sources? Like, do, do you also clarify that in your model itself that this is what people are deeming or is this like customized per the individuals that that's actually asking the questions? So this is uh, uh, customized on a, on a per task basis. Um, and then on a given question, so you ask the system a question, it will... Um, by design, not just be a black box that like has a lot of parameters that thinks really hard and gives you an answer. Um, it is going to say, okay, well, that's a question. I'm going to generate a search query, and then I'm going to go to my favorite retriever and send that search query over a specific index of specific documents, maybe ones that you selected, maybe just the web, uh, maybe Wikipedia, whatever, you know, maybe uh, Databricks documentation. Um, and I'm going to find some sources. And then I'm going to take these sources, arrange them in some way, and then give them to some model that will use them to extract an answer or to generate an answer or otherwise, you know, just uh, respond to the user uh, or any other number of like back and forth between these two components. Um, and so now you could always open up that box because it's very transparent behavior. Um, step by step um, and see what happened. And from an HCI standpoint, you have all what you need, or at least you have a lot of different things that you could start exposing to users um, on a per application basis as to what you think you deem uh, to be reasonable. To be clear, um, none of this means that the language model will necessarily say the right thing or even use the sources correctly, but as we continue to make that more, more, more and more you know, closer to being the case and more reliable, um, you have that visibility and you can see what, what, you know, what, what happened. Right. So, okay. And so related to that is the context within the idea that you're trying to reduce hallucinations basically of the model. Okay. Um, or having the model basically make up stuff or just outright say the wrong things. But then is there an implication that you would need to like provide the input of the said users, like this entire feedback loop of multiple users to, sort of pub and publicly showcase that as well in addition to the original model or the original process. So that way people can understand like how this model or this iteration of that model is making its choices. I'm just curious, like what would be the right context for something like this? Uh, yeah, so you wouldn't generally default to exposing too much. Um, but what you can say is for this, you are a particular user of a particular system that wants to be transparent about some specific subset of the workflow that is, that is doing, uh, that we decided is the right things to be, you know, we don't want to overload people because so, they're not going to do anything if we just give them like, you know, a million words and then they have to like 
weeks. No, no, that's fair. Like it'd be the equivalent of me saying, like, let, go look at the spark logs. Now let me <laughs> turn on verbose. <laughs> Good luck, right? Exactly. Yeah, so, so we're not going to be in verbose mode. I'm trying to avoid that scenario, which is basically the, the cause of question. I, 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 I personally have suffered the context of seeing verbose spark logs. I don't want to do that to anybody else either. So, so I'm just curious from the standpoint of, like, then in the case of, lang like, these models, right? Like, how do we find that right balance of the verbosity, yet at the same time, you definitely need to know some of this information. So let, let's actually pick a specific pipeline. Let's let's say you want to ask to ask uh, questions about uh, you know documentation of your favorite library, and maybe this library is not in the training data of the language model. Maybe the language model will not know the answer to many of these questions. Both of which are very common assumptions. They're very true. Um, so what you could have is a pipeline that takes your technical question and then spits out some search queries, maybe several and then searches with all of them and then reads 100 documents in, in total, but then it selects one, one, one document and, or three, uh, you know, a few documents. And then it gives those to a language model again and says, hey, um, answer the original question given these documents. What you could show to the user is the final answer uh, that the model generated, and then maybe a heat map or some other thing over the three documents that were fed there. The user could look at this and say, well, these documents are not even related to what you're talking about. Or, or they could say, oh, that looks very reasonable and, and, and such. So they don't need the burden of like, oh, I generated like all these queries and I did all that stuff. They ultimately just need um, like, a, you know, like a contract that says, hey, I found the following things and I did my best to generate this, this output based on it. You can check if these things are relevant and reliable, and you can check if I did a good job at summarizing them for you. And if I didn't, well, at least you know. And so what's the best way that you've seen people incorporate that feedback back into the model itself? Of like a uh, model, uh, model has its answer for the question at hand and the documents that it used as supporting sources. How do, what's the best way to evaluate this? I know you had mentioned that you can manually review it. Do you see a lot of reinforcement learning where people do a thumbs up, thumbs down? Is there any metric or objective function people can optimize? So a lot of DSP, and you know, we could definitely use this as a as an entry point to a lot of like, you know, how it works, and you know, what 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 we emphasize there um, is a lot of DSP is about working in domains where the requirements might be constantly changing, and we don't actually understand the tasks very well, or they're essentially few shot, and you know, you only have a small number of examples because you're writing them as you go, um, and you know, evaluation is a very big is a very big question in in, in this space, uh, but we emphasize the fact that you're working in a highly controllable um, multi-stage um, you know, um, world and a multi-stage pipeline, and you can much more easily evaluate the individual components and how they glue together than this big end-to-end -end black box system. So you could say like, hey, let me measure the accuracy of retrieval. And we, we have a good idea of how to like evaluate retrievers, uh, or let me measure the grounding between the retrieval and the generator, um, or any other number of like sub-components there. Um, so, you know, we, I, I do not claim at all that we've solved evaluation, but we certainly help you break things down to a more manageable um, level. As to how, um, you know, uh, essentially feedback goes, as you, as you said, um, so feedback is not exactly the right, the right um, um, uh, concept for us. Of course, it's, it's a very big topic. Um, but we focus more on what we call demonstrations, um, where um, maybe I should like um, uh, do a little bit more of a you know an overview of sort of the you know the way DSP uh, you know does the things that we discussed. So let's see. Um, um, so so. 
let's say let's see what would you do if you did not have a programming model like DSP. So maybe that's a good place to start this. Um, you would say, well, I'll pick my favorite retrieval model and I'll pick my favorite language model and I'll glue them together. So I'll give the input to the retrieval model, it'll find a bunch of sources, and then I'll concatenate them and give them to a language model and ask it to do a good job. And invariably, you'll find that it does not always do a good job. So now you're kind of, or, or maybe some other more complex chain, but now you're sort of stuck because prompt engineering, as, as, you know, as, as, as it is called, is, does not really offer a reliable sort of systematic way to continually improve on these systems. So then you come to things like feedback, as you said. So maybe you're essentially at the mercy of your language model provider to do a better job next time in aligning the model with simple instructions. So then your same instructions or the slightly better ones that you will write um, will lead the model to do a, a better job at the task. Not Alternatively, you could keep tweaking the prompts and you know have multiple of them if you want and do like a little bit of a chain of thought or reflection or all the cool things that people are, you know, are, are releasing. And they're, they can be very effective sometimes. Um, but it's a little bit unsystematic and, you know, it, uh, improvements will, may not necessarily add up lacking, a, a, you know, a systematic programming model. So what DSP says is, well, um, uh, let's think of what we do with, ne with deep neural networks. Well, what we do there is we don't just like come up with crazy architectures and implement them in matrix multiplications or in like NumPy or something, we go to something like PyTorch, a highly developed sort of abstraction or programming model that says, hey, you have layers and they could be convolution layers or linear layers or recurrent layers or whatever it is. Um, and those layers, they're, they're just like a, you know, individually, they're a black box that you define with a small number of like input and output behaviors or like parameters. And you tell me how to initialize it, or I'll just figure it out for you. And um, you can string them together, and that gives you the forward pass. And then you have maybe a little bit of training data. And if you run the forward pass properly, I will figure out, as, as PyTorch, how to do backpropagation. And I'll give you Adam and SGD and all of these optimizers. And I'll figure out how to get how to glue the layers together for you. Why are you trying to do this yourself? Um, and obviously PyTorch did not come up with all of these, but you know, it, it's, it's a very nice example of this. What we're trying to do with DSP is figure out, I don't have layers, I have foundation models. I have a retriever, I have a language model. I have small task specific models that do summarization or translation or whatever it is. How can we program these the way we program PyTorch um, uh, you know, classes? Uh, how do we build programs of these things that compose? And you know, the what we've sort of, you know, what we've sort of d developed there is this um, is this way of saying, okay, well, at the leaves where you had layers before, we're going to have something that we call transformations, and these are essentially calls to a foundation model, usually a, a language model or a, or a retrieval model, but in principle could be other things, um, where we're not going to tell the model exactly what to do because that's too um, you know, that is too focused on, you know, on, on, on how to do it. We want this to be declarative. And so what we'll say is, hey, your inputs are going to be the following things. Maybe your input is some context and a question and, you know, some initial steps or whatever. And I'm going to tell you what the output is. And I'm going to do all of this in, um, in, with, with data types, but they're semantic data types. I'm going to tell you like, hey, when I tell you that you should generate an answer, here's what I expect in English from an answer. And I'm not going to do this um, as a prompt that will tie me to like GPTK, GPT-4, GPT-3, uh, or a specific model. And I'm certainly not going to write this down as like a bunch of examples showing you good behavior and bad behavior. I'm just going to describe the signature. Here are the inputs, here are the outputs as data types, 
um, as, as these high-level data types. And I'm going to have my program as just a, you know this simple you know um, open-ended Python program, plain Python program. You have loops or if statements of these things interacting together. And then what I will benefit you know from DSP in the most is now I can go to the DSP runtime and say. Hey, here's here's my plan. Here's my structure. I want you to retrieve, you know, these sources, generate several queries, aggregate these results, give them to these models, ask that model to summarize. You know, I'm building up this pipeline, essentially this workflow or this flowchart, and, and I'm going to tell the model, uh, sorry, the the DSP runtime, please, you know, map this um, to a good few shot, um, you know, pipeline of DS of of GPT 3.5 calls or GPT 4 calls or whatever, and you know, I'm going to like follow that program closely and, uh, you know, you could add some like uh, annotations there at the at the code level that say, hey, um, when you generate queries, um, they shouldn't be above a specific length or they should, you know, lead to the answer when we know the answer or, or whatever other programmatic conditions. And what, what DSP would do is it would take this program and two or three, okay, you know, a small number of training examples, as many as you want, but could be a very, could be a handful, just a handful. And it would simulate your program on them, applying any of the conditions that you have in your code. And what it can do with that is it can discover a few shot prompts that work well uh, in practice. So then it will build these prompts for you in a systematic way that is modular in the data. So let's say in the future, you have new data, like you know, you you're changing the corpus or you're changing the search model that you're using, and it behaves very differently. You don't need to like rewrite your prompts. Your program was always about sort of um, uh, what's it called, the signature level, and that signature never changed. Just the implementations of the underlying uh, leaves, um, and uh, you know, you could sort of see how having an abstraction that forces you or encourages you to think at level of you know high level signatures and it really discourages prompt engineering and you know more more into the software engineering realm instead um, could could uh, you know could abstract away a lot of these elements of feedback because the you know these models can self improve in, in that way and so what do you view as the future direction then I mean right now prompt engineering is a very hot topic what do you view as the future direction of LLMs NLP prompt engineering um, so we we are very excited about Thinking of these as programming models for working with these, uh, you know, just large language models or foundation models, um, where you specify high-level plans. You don't just rely on the language model itself making these decisions in like free agents sense. Um, that might be good for some like low-risk applications where you know anything is fine. But uh, usually, or, or in many cases, you really do want a little bit more reliability and control. Um, at the same time, we do not want this to end up being a case of specifying all the details by hand, we are optimistic that with the, with the right abstractions, um, a lot of the low-level details will be delegated to programmatic sort of methods. And I think DSP offers a lot of those. For instance, a lot of, um, there's, a, there's this growing and I think correct sort of realization that a lot of the future is going to be, maybe going to stay essentially, but going to be a lot of smaller task-specific models. Um, but in DSP, I think I think our hypothesis is more like you might not actually know that they're small task specific models because they will be compiled 
by this abstraction that will look at your program and say, huh, I get, I get what you're trying to do, and, I can, and I've been gathering data for a while, and I can actually just train a small model that does exactly that part of your program better than better and obviously a lot cheaper than, you know, asking a large language model. And in fact, we do have a, a DSP compiler in the abstraction that you could, you know, all this is, is you know, many of these are things that are, or you can already try out uh, and whatever isn't there now will, will be soon. Um, so um, um, in terms of future also, I guess one last thing is, um, I think in NLP in particular, we've had a lot of, I would say, unhealthy degrees of X is all you need, be it scale is all you need, or attention is all you need, or um, retrieval is all you need. And, you know, I mean, all these sorts of um, uh, proclamations. And I don't think it takes a lot of, you know, rare wisdom to realize that it's probably not true that any one thing is all you need. You you got to use all of what you have and, you know, like do a good job at a software engineering level and be a little bit more deliberate, get human feedback, scale, sure, that's fine, use attention, think about HCI with users so that, you know, in mind so that, you know, uh, mistakes are a lot less problematic. Um, and just in general, think of how to ground these tools. If you want to do math, you don't want, there's no point teaching the model how to do like, you know, um, uh, long multiplications. You could just use a calculator. If you want to search for things, well, just search for them. Um, so artificially restricting ourselves to some X is all you need is probably going to stop being the default position. I'm sure it was going to stay around, but um, um, at least I hope it, you know, we, we, we go beyond that uh, stage. Maybe it goes back to the wise wisdom of everything in moderation. Exactly. Yeah. None of the absolutes are here to stay. They'll just keep changing. Um, well, I wanted to thank you so much, Omar, for joining us on Databrew uh, and giving us a high level of DSP and the evolution of how we got here. Uh, for folks who are interested, highly recommend checking out the DSP paper. There's some very impressive results, including performance uh, improvements of over 120% when compared to GPT 3.5. So super impressive work, Omar. Keep and, it up. And GitHub. So the code is, is public. You know, you could play with the Colab notebooks there. Um, awesome. Yeah. I mean, we appreciate everything open source and making um, making this framework effectively available to everyone as opposed to keeping things proprietary behind an API. So really appreciate that. Thank you.